There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. Crackdown on holidaymakers as non-essential international travel fines to increase to €2,000. And tonight, a deal done on secondary school return for special needs classes. Plus, rollback on pension promises and more confusion over PUP payments. Minister for Finance Pascal Donoghue joins us in studio. And later in the programme, as the UK ramps up with tougher mandatory quarantine, are COVID variants set to be with us long after the vaccine rollout? And are we ultimately moving closer towards a zero COVID strategy? Plus shots fired in the Doyle as Labour's Duncan Smith calls out the Healy Rays. So I'm not going to be lectured on understanding workers. I don't have to put on a political costume and a caricature to pretend I'm working class like some. Michael Healy Ray joins us with his response and on calls for insurers to pay out for COVID business closures. Get in touch via Twitter with the hashtag TonightVMTV. And our first guest this evening is the Minister for Finance, Pascal Donoghue. Minister, thank you very much for joining us. First of all, I want to ask you about this crackdown on international travellers, people trying to go out on, the ho- on a holiday out of the country. Why now? Why is it suddenly that in 2021, the issue of people travelling seems to be finally been treated more seriously than it was last year? Well, it is, has always been treated with great seriousness. And the evidence of that is the fact that there's a reduction of 94% in the number of people that are coming into our country versus where we would have been during more normal times. We have made huge changes in access uh, to our country, uh, particularly from countries that could pose a higher risk to Ireland due to variant development there. So very significant focus has always been placed on this issue. The reason why we're placing higher focus on it now is we know more about variants and more about the variant risk. And actually, as we are more successful, in reducing community transmission within our own country, international travel could pose a higher risk to the progress that we are making. It's still quite clear that lots of people went on holidays last year. Lots of people are still away on holidays and have been coming back in recent weeks. Do you regret now that you didn't have a firmer approach last year when lots of people were telling you that this virus is not coming in on the wind, this is coming in with people on planes and on ferries? Uh, Well, if you look at what's happened over the last number of weeks, uh, around 0.5% of all of the cases of COVID that we've recorded here in Ireland relate to international travel. The bigger picture of where we are with this disease is over the last four weeks, the number of people who are in hospital with COVID-19 has halved. This disease is getting smaller every day, so we are making progress. Uh, But across the period in which you're referring to there, we were very, very clear 
that you should only leave Ireland for non-essential travel. You should not be going on holiday in Ireland, uh, out of Ireland, excuse me. And we took huge measures uh, uh, here at home to reduce the risk of community transmission while significantly reducing access into our country at the same time. Yet it's clear that the Kent variant, as it's been call, called, is responsible for about 75% of our cases now. Clearly that was imported into the country. But within a few days of us being aware of the potential risk of the Kent variant, the variant that was discovered in the United Kingdom, within a few days of us becoming aware of the risk that posed to Ireland, we radically reduced the access between the United Kingdom and Ireland precisely in recognition of that point. And indeed, doesn't that show that you're chasing it all the time? It's like you hear about Brazil, you hear about South Africa, so then you react by having the shutdown afterwards. You're now worried about it coming from other countries, so now you start closing down on those. Isn't that a clear indication that you needed to be getting ahead of things rather than always been reacting? So when you're talking about us being ahead of things, in the different situations in which we reduced access further to Ireland, our country was in various stages of being locked down to deal with this disease. So we were always trying to put in place the conditions to reduce the spread of COVID-19. And we have at times have had to respond back as we've learned more about the disease or if the health circumstances have changed in our country. So, and I go back to the example you gave me there of the so-called Kent variant. You know, within a day or two of it being identified scientifically, as a risk to the development of COVID in our country, we acted, we reduced access, and the bigger picture of where we are at the moment is this disease getting smaller day after day due to the efforts of the well, Irish your people. Your party leader, Antonista Leo Varadkar, told me on radio last night about a two-island approach been taken. But again, aren't we well behind what the British are actually doing in relation to this? They have 33 countries on a red list. They have much stiffer mandatory quarantine for people coming into the country potentially 10-year prison terms well, for people who are lying. And they're not allowing flights in from places like Dubai and Portugal, which seem to be coming into Ireland instead. Well, it's a matter for the United Kingdom to decide what they think is proportionate uh, in terms of action that they want to take. The mandatory quarantine facilities they've indicated they're going to set up, I think they're still in the process of setting them up, facing the same kind of challenges that we are. And if you look at the measures that we have taken, I mean, travel in and out of our country, it's down over 90% versus where we were a year ago. Look at how little movement is actually happening in most of our airports. Look at all we've done to reduce access. Look at the requirements that we have for PCR testing. Look at the changes that have been made for particular countries. I know there are those who will always call on us to do more, we have put in place huge measures to reduce access into Ireland. Okay. Uh, but it's just critical to place the in issue of international travel against the fact that it accounts for around half of 1% of the issues of COVID-19 within our country in recent weeks. It's where we are with social distancing. It's where we are with other public health measures that such make such a big difference to our ability yeah, to beat this disease. You've been not to take the zero COVID approach as has been suggested by some scientists and academics, but in reality, is that where we're actually heading at present? Uh, no. Um, what we are doing, I mean, there's some different debates, been, been, uh, different approaches being debated, one of which is the whole concept of radical suppression of the spread of COVID-19, trying to reduce the spread of it as so far as possible until our vaccination programmes make the difference we want. That is what we're looking to do. 
We're looking to take all the realistic and feasible steps that we can to beat this disease, which we're making progress on. We'll get to a better place in this disease later on this year. The reason why I, I have not argued for us adopting a COVID-19 approach, a zero approach, excuse me, is because that's mostly defined in the literature about it being zero cases of COVID transmission within our community for 14 days in a row. Uh, that is something that we didn't even achieve a fraction of in the days in which we had community transmission at its very, very, very minimum. And I believe the measures that will be required to achieve a goal like that could have so many other consequences for other forms of health within our country and for our society it would that would concern that me. you're going to suppress as much as possible. Well, that's what we've that, always looked yeah, to do. Well, yes well, and no, because you've opened up quickly on a couple of occasions last year, which you may now regret. Indeed, Taoiseach Mial Martin over the weekend in the Irish Mail on Sunday admitted that he now regrets the opening up in December. So is this an admission that you didn't go far enough last year and that in addition now that you're becoming increasingly worried by your ability to deal with the variants of COVID-19? So look at where we were last year. For many parts of last year, we had uh, very, very tough and demanding public health measurements, measures in place. For many parts of last year, the Oxford Public Health Stringency Index that compares the impact of different public health measures across different economies would have said that the Irish government had one of the most cautious approaches to dealing with COVID-19 of many of the other governments that we would be compared to. And then you blew it all at the end with. of November by opening up things for December. So again, as I said, the context of doing that would have been an incredibly cautious approach in public health. When we did get to the point of changing our public health measures there in November, we were doing it at a point in which we had community transmission at a very, very, very low level. Uh, we had one of the lowest levels of COVID incidents across uh, Europe. And we had had our economy shut down for six weeks and with hundreds of thousands of people not having a job. And what we did try to do to see, would it be possible to get our community and our economy back open again while containing community and transmission? And you that was a wrong call? It didn't work. And I said that before. It didn't work. Uh, and uh, we had to take other measures okay. afterwards well, to you've, undo that. Hopefully you've learned from it. But on the very last programme of 2020 in this studio, the last question I asked you about was hope for 2021. And you spoke very eloquently about your hopes for the vaccine. Have those hopes somewhat evaporated in the early months of 2021, particularly with the slower rollout? We're now hearing that the over 70s may not be completed until June. We had been told originally the end of March. I just want to go back to a point you made about what I've learned uh, when we took the decisions that did contribute to where we were with public health in January. Uh, and I've learned so many things in dealing with this disease and having the privilege of being in government when our country was confronted with a pandemic. Um, and of course, we did not get everything right. Of course, we've made mistakes. It's the essence of being human. It's the essence of being in politics as well when you're dealing with something like a pandemic. But overall, our country overall the measures that we have put in place from a public health and an economic point of view have prevented the loss of life in our country. And I'd make that case respectfully to you while also acknowledging we should have done other things differently. In dealing with your point about the hope that I have for 2021, I'm still really hopeful for where we'll be later on in the year. I always anticipated we would get into difficulties with the supply of vaccines, given the competition for those vaccines. But if you look at where we are now, I mean, we're going to approach 
uh, like a really sombre anniversary in March when we'll trace back to the early weeks of COVID-19 arriving to Ireland. And I think if I had said to your viewers a year ago that we would be here in February with our country still in lockdown, it would have been a cause of great despair. But if on the other hand, I had said even seven or eight months ago that we could have a choice of vaccines available to our country in 2021, that would have looked so optimistic. Okay, we are going to have those vaccines available. The WHO they will is help. now saying the AstraZeneca vaccine is okay for over 65s. Would you change course again and start giving it our tour over 70s to speed up the no, vaccination that, 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 that is a matter for uh, our European regulators and our regulator here in Ireland, rather than a decision for me to take. The bedrock of how these vaccines will work is the retention of public confidence. And it's up to our scientists to make that call your, and I'll be guided by them. Your responsibility is the economy, but how fearful are you that the economic recovery that you might have expected and budgeted for is not going to be achieved this year? Um, uh, I do believe when we move into the second half of 2021, we will see an economic rebound. I had anticipated when I was doing the budget uh, last October that it might have been happening a little earlier than the second half. But this is the reason why we put such flexibility into our budget and created different funds to help support employment and help support income. But when we move into the second half of this year, if we combine the successful rollout of a vaccine programme here in Ireland, which we will do, we're 50 days into this programme here in Ireland. We've 84,000 people in our country fully vaccinated. We will build on this day after day. If we combine that with adherence to public health measures, our economy can recover. We'll get our country back to work. There's some controversy today about taxation of the PUP payments when people return to work. And I don't want to get into the technicalities of that. What I want to ask you is the 460,000 or so people who are on PUP, will they actually be able to get back to work this year? How many of them would you hope will be able to come off it and be earning incomes that might be taxed? Uh, well, uh, I believe many of them will be able to get back to work uh, as we move through this year. Uh, and I believe out of that 460,000 who are on the PUP at the moment, and in fact, it's even higher, it will be possible to get many of them back to work at some point in 2021. It is going to be a, a very demanding project for us because what I'm most concerned about economically is getting our country back to work. But we will do it. When, and I believe between, and I believe between 21 and the early part of 2022, we will be successful in that. Yeah, but all these workers in construction, when will they be back? What's deemed non-essential retail, the hairdressers, the people who are working in hospitality, people in aviation. Do you have target dates to get these people but, back but into Matt, employment? Just join up the different parts of this interview. In the early part of the interview, you were asking me about, did we move too quickly in reopening up our economy in November? And did I regret the public health consequences of that? You're now asking me about what is the way in which we're going yeah, to open up our economy. Yeah, because you're redrawing no, the living room of a plan Matt, and sorry. we'll be announcing it in two weeks' time. So I'm trying sorry. to get an indication Matt. from you as to how you're going to have the balance between the public health requirements and also the economic needs for people to get back to work. I understood the point you were making. I think it's equally fair for me to make the point that if you're making the case about not being cautious enough last year, it's understandable that that's going to inform the decisions that we're going to make now. I think that's a fair point for me to make. The reason why I'm not in a position to be able to outline who's going to go back to work when is because we still have not seen 
the full progress that we want in containing the spread of the disease. And we can't, I can't be on your programme tonight and say at what point each sector is going to go back. But what we will do is when we approach March the 5th with the information that we have and the judgment we have, we will give as much guidance as we okay. can. What about the schools? Because I believe the Fine Gael Parliamentary Party meeting tonight passed a motion uh, looking for the schools to go back, which is a bit odd given that you are in government and have the power to decide when the schools well, go back. Well, it's government policy for our schools to go back, Matt. Well, when are you going to get them back? Well, but just to, again, deal with the issue of consistency there. It's government policy to get our schools open. We had a debate within our parliamentary party about the value of that. They're not inconsistent with each other. In terms of when we will do it, uh, there is a communication being issued, in fact, earlier, issued earlier on today regarding progress that we want to make in allowing students that have and need additional support within our schools to get them back in a phased basis. And I know Norma Foley and Josefa Madigan are working hard to come up with a plan regarding how we can get our schools safely open. I'm well aware of the strain and pressure that this causes in so many at the moment, and we do want to get our schools safely open. But we can only make an announcement on that when we're clear when and how. Very briefly, a year ago, one of the major issues in the uh, general election was the pension age of 65. And the changes that have been made, you've been criticised today by Sinn Féin, that basically you're just giving these people unemployment payments rather than the state pension they're Well, we're actually to. making a payment available uh, to those who are waiting to go on to the full state pension that's bigger than the value of the equivalent payments that Sinn Féin house in hand out in Northern Ireland. That's Northern Ireland. We're talking about yeah, but I think equivalence that... here between those payments and oh, the pension. But I think there's the a case to be made in equivalence of Sinn Féin stand up and attack the government for something we've done today uh, when they're not even in a position to do something equivalent to Northern Ireland. I think it's a point worth making. Uh, we said in the general election that we would make a transitionary payment available uh, for the gap between when somebody finishes up work and then when they're able to get the full state pen pension at the age of 66. That's what's happening. OK, there's been something of a controversy as to whether the Taoiseach should be vaccinated to go to the White House, but Killian de Gascon has said the entire Cabinet should be vaccinated to provide protection at the time that you're doing your work. Would you agree? Do you think that might be a good idea? Uh, um, for the Taoiseach, if President Biden extends an invitation to go to the White House, I think the Taoiseach should accept that. If he needs to get vaccinated to do that, I think he should be vaccinated. For the rest of Cabinet at the moment, given that our movements are so limited and our travel is so limited. Personally speaking, I'm happy to wait uh, until my natural point in the turn. But for the, tea, uh, in the, in the in the vaccination process, excuse me, but for the Taoiseach specifically and anybody who has to travel to the States, I believe they should travel and I believe if they need a vaccination to go to the Oval Office, they should get one. Thank you very much, Pascal Donoghue, Minister for Finance, for joining us. After the break, as the UK clamps down with severe border controls, do new variants mean a zero COVID approach is inevitable? And have healthcare workers and women been disproportionately impacted by this pandemic?
Welcome back. Well, we're joined now by the Green Party TD, Nasa Horrigan, by Associate Professor in Biochemistry and Immunology at Trinity College Dublin and member of the Independent Scientific Advocacy Group, Tomás Ryan, and via Skype by the Vice President of the Irish Hospital Consultants Association, Dr. Gabrielle Colloran. Gabrielle, we're getting welcome news that the numbers of COVID-19 patients in hospitals is reducing. But in reality, is your workload reducing by much because of that? Well, Matt, what we're seeing is that the numbers in hospitals are slowly decreasing. But the numbers are still much higher than during the peak in April. And it's important to, to note that the, the dominant variant now, the English variant, has quite a different biology to the virus that we're used to since March. It's much more transmissible. And what we're seeing is it behaves differently. So previously, people got sick in the first five to 10 days if they needed to come to hospital. But my colleagues in infectious diseases and in respiratory medicine are saying that with the new variant, they're seeing multiple peaks of deterioration out into the second week and to the third week. So that's having an impact on hospitalizations and people are staying longer. And Matt, while we're talking about the new variant and about hospital infections, I think it's really important to talk about the infection control aspect because I've seen a narrative emerging where people are starting to point fingers at healthcare workers and that's causing huge upset and distress to staff. So I'll, I'll give you this example, Matt. We're doing everything we can to keep the COVID and non-COVID care separate. So if somebody falls and they break their hip and they come into hospital, they're tested for COVID. But because community transmission is so high, people are coming in who are incubating the virus, who aren't symptomatic yet. They're testing negative on admission. And because our hospitals are not you know, fit for modern healthcare because we have too few single rooms, people who test negative on admission will likely end up in a six-bedded ward. And over the coming days, they may become symptomatic. But at that point, they may have infected everybody in that room and the healthcare staff that are looking after them. And that reflects our high levels of community transmission, how infectious this new variant is, the fact that our bed occupancy runs at 100% compared to countries like Finland, where it's down at 80%, and that we just don't have enough single occupancy rooms. So when we talk about nosocomial infection, instead of pointing fingers at healthcare workers who have been moving mountains for the last 11 months, we need to point the finger at successive governments who have failed to invest in the infrastructure to allow us to provide modern infection control that is fit for 21st century healthcare. Well, let me put and that I, to, we have a government backbench TD with us, Nasa Horrigan, what do you say to that, that it seems that the hospitals weren't adequately prepared physically to deal with a stronger variant? 
I wouldn't deny that in the least. I, I think that we, we all know that in this country we haven't had enough capital investment in healthcare buildings. Um, having in a previous life, life worked on healthcare buildings, I, I'm very aware that you know most patients should be going into a single occupancy room with correct HEPA filters. And, and that is not the case in Ireland because we're often dealing with 18th or, 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 or even later buildings and uh, 18th century buildings. And I, I think that is an ongoing issue. Um, Sorry, Nelson, without advocating that the building when these field hospitals like they did in China a year ago at rapid speed. Would it not have been possible to have done something during the summer months and autumn months to increase capacity in our hospitals to prepare for this? I think the problem with that is always staffing. And we have and we continue to struggle to staff wards um, even where the actual physical um, beds are there, we don't necessarily have the staffing to fill them. And we, we hear that at the health committee. But you have to have the, the spaces the provided and the beds in the first place, don't you? We do, and we need to be able to um, differentiate, a, 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 as was just heard there, between um, people who are coming in for a, a, a general operation or a general condition and, and people who are coming in with COVID. And we're not able to do that because we are dealing with a ramshackle system that hasn't been properly invested in. Okay, I want to move it on a little bit, Tomás, and this approach that the government is taking, if not zero COVID, as we were told by Minister Pascal Donoghue, aiming to suppress. How important do you think might that be if this new variant from the UK is so transmissible and if we fear that further variants might do even more damage? I think we need a good deal of political humility from all sides of the Oireachtas at the moment and we need to reevaluate where we are now. Imagine we went back to March 2020 and think about all the things we wish we had done then that we didn't, given how the last year has played out. We're in a new situation. We're almost like we're in a pandemic within a pandemic. This new variant is a game changer. It doesn't look like we can live at level three with this new variant. So we need to adjust our thinking. So far, we've been thinking about the COVID-19 pandemic like a flood instead of a fire. Now, floods are caused by the weather. There's nothing we can do about them. We suffer the damage and we mitigate for it. And it would be ridiculous to expect a government to have a zero flood policy. That's just not possible. But COVID-19 is more like a fire. It's something that we can control. And if we don't, then it doubles and it doubles and it doubles. Now, we have a zero fire policy in Ireland. It doesn't mean we never have a fire. It means that when there's a fire, we put it out all the way. We don't leave a few rooms in a house on fire and drive back and say, you need to get back into the house and balance living with the fire. We put the fire out and we never, ever tolerate it spreading to other buildings. That's what zero COVID is. That's all it is. We eliminate every chain of transmission and we prevent it coming back into the country. Okay, let me go back to you, Gabrielle Colloran, on that. Is that what you would like to see being done by government, an even tougher approach to people coming into the country if we suspect they're the ones who could bring the other variants with them? Well, Matt, I'm not a public health specialist, but I know our public health specialists, like Dr. Marie Casey, have been calling for mandatory quarantine for months. And I think what we need to do is have policy that is public health led, not public health inspired. And it's incredible to me that 11 months into the pandemic, we haven't appropriately resourced our public health specialists. Everywhere else in the world, they have consultant status. They have the infrastructure, they have the staffing so that they can really shut down every cluster aggressively. You know, living with this virus doesn't work. We have to suppress it aggressively. We really have to chase it down and then we have to, you know, move forward 
and start to be able to you know, provide healthcare on the level that we need to. We have huge unmet need. We have 840,000 people on waiting lists. So we really have to aggressively suppress this. We need to do a lot of work on ventilation in hospitals and in buildings. Orla Hegarty has done incredible work on this. And much of this is actually not that expensive to do. So as Thamosa said, you know, we have to show that agility and that innovation, which we have seen in abundance in healthcare over the last 11 months. Now in our political response, this new variant is a game changer. And the reality is there may well be more. And until the vaccine rollout occurs in lower income countries, you know, globally, we're at huge risk of vaccine resistant strains emerging. So it's not only, you know, morally an imperative that we ensure that there's vaccine rollout in low income countries. It's also a threat to our security globally. So pandemics require a global response and we need to show more agility now Massa. and adjust our direction. So how much of those ideas that you're hearing from both Tomás and Gabriel would you want to be included in the government's new living with COVID strategy, the revamped model which is due to be out in a couple of weeks' time? Well, I think a number of really important points have been raised there. One is the idea that this variant is new and, and it's a pandemic within a pandemic. And, and I take that really seriously. And, and therefore, I think we do need to look at very stringent measures um, as we're, as was mentioned earlier, trying to open up schools. It really is a, a new um, landscape that we're working on. I have to say, I think that that idea um, that, you know, we need a bit of humility within the political sphere is correct. And I think all ideas should be on the table. But equally, you know, the discussions around COVID over the last 48 hours and moving towards zero COVID or more stringent measures, there's been a lot of um, kind of criticism of the Taunister, the Taoiseach. And to be honest with you, while I think it's really important that we have these kind of debates within the political sphere, there is coming, there's, we're going to come to a point where we're just chipping away at people's confidence, you know, and, and public confidence in, in strategies that need to be developed as the pandemic develops. And so I think we need to be careful here about how we, as, as at all, as an Oireachtas, um, go, go yeah, through the next few months. Are we going far enough, as I put to Pascal Donoghue earlier, with the restrictions on travel? For example, we don't seem to be anywhere near as strong as how the British have suddenly, if belatedly, decided to react. Well, in fact, I think that we should be more stringent and we should be looking at more testing and tracing and and um, and looking at, you know, providing longer stays in hotels. And in fact, I wrote to Eamon Ryan a, a number of weeks ago on that issue and supported some of our own councillors who wanted us to look at more detail um, on uh, zero COVID strategies. So I think that that's fair debate and I think that that should be taken sorry, seriously. Instead, instead of actually threatening to fine people €2,000 for leaving the country, they could pay the money and still get on the flight to go on their holiday. Should they be detained? and stopped from getting on flights. It's been quite serious if they are going to be putting people at risk by their selfish actions. I think it is serious to put people at risk. I think it's also serious to detain people. And I know that human rights groups in Ireland have been very slow to support measures like that. But I think we're getting to a very serious point now where um, even today, I know some of the, the, the briefing advice was that a, 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 still a significant number of people coming through airports are returning from holiday. And, and really, if you're going to be dealing with people who still are returning from holiday, I'm not sure what else we can do other than detain people. But there is an argument to us, Rand, that these people are going on holiday 
holiday. It's almost for mental health reasons that they're cracking under the strain. That, and in addition to that, this sort of fire blanket approach that you're suggesting won't just suffocate the fire, but it actually is doing massive damage to many people's mental health. It's costing so many jobs that there is a consequence for your suggestions as how to get rid of COVID. It is the virus that's damaging the economy, damaging people's mental health, causing restrictions that are damaging the economy. We need to look at what works. The opposition parties, and I think many, many members of the government parties, are recognizing two very important facts. One is that a year into the pandemic, there is only one strategy that has worked for dealing with COVID-19. Get it down, get it out, and keep it out. And it's also being recognized that there is widespread support in the population for either zero COVID or the measures that are required to achieve zero COVID. Over 90% of people want mandatory hotel quarantine. And we are seeing this sort of point scoring debates between politicians, which aren't really helping anyone. Some politicians are showing a lot of bravery in admitting that what we've been doing has not been working, that we've gotten it wrong badly twice. And what the public, I think, need to see is more of a grand coalition attitude from both sides of the Oireachtas to come together and find a way of implementing in a manner that will work for Ireland, the only strategy that has been scientifically shown to work. Gabrielle, there is something else that I want to bring up with you, and this is the impact on healthcare workers of the strain of the long hours, the very difficult work, on top of having to do things like homeschool and looking after it. But the, disproportionately, the burden does seem to fall upon women, making up 79% of the healthcare workforce. How can this be dealt with? So, Matt, 79% of our healthcare workers are women. And so, you know, women are disproportionately carrying the burden in healthcare. And when the schools closed after Christmas, and there was no plan for the children of healthcare workers, that placed a disproportionate burden on women who unfortunately research would tell us, you know, carry that burden of childcare and of care. So that has really been the straw that has broken the camel's back, especially as healthcare workers have looked to Northern Ireland and to other countries um, within Europe, where even when schools have closed, schools have remained open for the children of healthcare workers. You know, and many healthcare workers are, are single parents and they're having now to pay extra childcare costs because their children are not in school and the government isn't supporting them with that. So that has been really damaging for morale that, you know, 11 months into a pandemic where healthcare workers for the 10 months before we started vaccinating healthcare workers were going into work at risk of getting COVID, seeing colleagues getting sick, some of them coming back to work, some of them still being off with long COVID and symptoms, knowing that they were at risk of getting sick knowing that we could bring it home to our families, to vulnerable family members. So there's really a need for the government to do more to support healthcare workers. What I'm hearing from colleagues in medicine and nursing, in health and social care professions, is that people are really worried about an exodus from the profession. You know, doctors worldwide, there's a rate of burnout of one in three. When we surveyed consultants in 2018, the rate in Ireland was 45%. 
That's not surprising. We have the lowest specialist numbers okay. in Europe. We have 728 empty posts. So we need to look after our healthcare workers who are being really damaged Well, by let me this. put that to Nasa Harrigan. Without wishing to chip away at the confidence of our political leaders, this is a topic that we raised on many occasions last year at representatives who pointed out the importance of it. And yet, when we got to another lockdown this year, there was nothing in place to look after the needs of our healthcare workers. Why not? I, th I think that's fair comment. I think that, you know, Minister O'Gorman is trying to keep early childhood um, uh, services open for healthcare workers and, and for essential workers. Um, and he, he is bringing through a, a new programme, a, a new policy on that, um, that will see, you know, early childhood professionals paid properly and um, the system supported in the way that it should have been and hasn't. But ultimately what we need is women in decision-making um, groups and, and, and at that level, they, you know, if you don't have women at the table making these decisions, you won't see those kind of issues reflected in the decisions that are made. OK, we're going to leave it there for now. Our thanks to Dr Gabrielle Colloran and Tomás Ryan for being with us. Nessa Harrigan is staying with us. And after the break, Labour's Duncan Smith had this to say today in the Doyle about the Healy Ray brothers. I spent my teenage years working on sites filling skips today. Or are they driving their Mercedes into their big plant hire shops, walking past all their machineries worth hundreds of thousands to count all their money? Or to count up all their properties? You had your chance. You had your chance. Sit down, Deputy Chair. So I'm not going to be lectured on understanding workers. I don't have to put on a political costume and a caricature to pretend I'm working class like some. Michael Healy Ray joins us in studio with his reaction right after this. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Welcome back. NASA Harrigan of the Greens is still with us. And we're joined now by independent TD Michael Healy Ray, who, of course, was the subject of that attack by Duncan Smith of the Labour Party in the Doyle earlier today. I'm nearly tempted to play it again, Michael, for the entertainment value, because you've been found out and you've been called out that for all this guff that you come out with about representative of the working man, you're really the representative of the rich landlord class and business owner in this country, aren't you? You're in good form tonight, Matt. I wouldn't take much notice of an attack of what I would call from the new Labour. The Labour that I knew when I was starting out in politics, there were good people in Labour. In my county, for example, we had the Springs, we had the Moynihans. Uh, we had very, what I would call, sincere, dedicated 
servants of the people. Uh, the labour that I've seen in my time, especially since I came to Dublin, is a completely far-removed thing from that. Uh, I saw what Labour did when they were in power. I saw, for example, I'll just give you examples. When they made promises before an election with regard to students' fees and what they would do. And what did they do? They increased them by nearly 100% when they got into power. And they said, ah, oh, well, that's, that's what you do. That's what politics is. I saw when they abolished the bereavement grant. I see how little housing uh, was built for people that needed local authority housing under Labour. So I saw Labour in action in government. And I have to be honest, and I'll stop talking then. They were horrible in government. Absolutely horrible. And did you horrible. not appreciate the circumstances which they faced in getting into government that had been bequeathed yes, to them by a government which I think your own late father had propped yes. up on many occasions? I'm a very much a political realist and I know exactly what they had to do and what they didn't have to do. And like I say, they were particularly horrible in government. And why I called them out this morning and why I got under their skin today was because I told the truth. What they were doing today with their motion that they were, they were trying to make themselves relevant again. It certainly got under Danny's skin. You may say you weren't upset by it, but we saw Danny got very, very upset I don't get it. too upset about anything because they can say what they like about me and I will take no notice of anything that will come out of the mouth of somebody with Labour stamped on their back because I saw them in action. And like I say, they were horrible and useless. But you're are today calling out for actions on behalf of the business class, aren't you? You're looking for compensation to be paid to them by insurers for closures. Is that in all cases or only when it's specifically that the actual insurance policies they have cover such no, eventualities? No, well, look, if, if you're referring to the recent court case, for, there was a 214-page uh, report from a very learned judge who had a very complex case before him it's going to range in the order of something like 12 insurance companies are going to be involved, a thousand businesses are going to be involved. It was very complex. But at the end of the day, if people take out specific insurance to cover them, they would expect now, that that insurance would kick in. specific case that publicans took against FBD. Yes. Now, yes. Do you believe that there are many other insurers in the country who similarly had refused to pay out properly when there was specific cover in place for yes. businesses? Yes, my own research into it. I've no monopoly in being right about it insurance companies are what they do or don't do, but I think this will involve and affect 12 insurance companies. What I would say, and I really sincerely hope this, we've seen in the past where there was compensation paid out on a large scale like this and when cases were taken. And who paid for it? We all paid for it afterwards. And so we I... we end up bailing yes, out the insurance exactly. companies. Exactly. So what I'm saying is, like, I think FBD are being very... Uh, after a battle, which I presume they felt they had to take, uh, they know the learned judge has made a decision. FBD are taking that ruling on board and they're already releasing funds and settling their, their cases, well, as I presume the others. In this. Is this something that government needs to come in and intervene and force insurance companies to honour claims that are made by companies who feel that they haven't been compensated for closure of business? I think, well, look, leaving aside the, the, the larger issue about insurance reform in this country, which I think we all accept we do need some reform, I think there is a role now for the central bank to ensure that both insurance companies are fulfilling their contracts and that consumers are protected and, and that they are covered for what they expected to be covered for. I, I suspect over the next few months there will be numerous 
claims and disputes in this area and that there'll be a bit of an avalanche of it, to be honest with you. And, and I do wonder uh, around, you know, the financial services and pensions ombudsman, he, there, you know, that, that office is quite behind in dealing with complaints already. I suspect that there will be many, many more and that's going to be an ongoing issue. Now, Michael, we've been hearing a lot about uh, people not being able to go on foreign holidays this year. What about people coming into the country to support the tourism industry here in Ireland? I know it's very important in Kerry, you have 45% unemployment in Kerry because of the damage to the tourism industry. But with the Irish Tourist Industry Confederation today looking for tourists to be allowed in in the second half of the year, is that realistic? Is that safe? I, I actually don't think it is. And you know that I always want to say that, look, Ireland and Kerry and everywhere is open for business and we want to bring in as many people as we can. But to be honest with you, this year, it's very obvious what this year is going to be about. This year, please God, will be about Irish people holidaying in Ireland and moving within our own country, if we will be allowed to do so. And you think uh, is that even in doubt? Do you think well, is it in doubt that perhaps people will be allowed to move outside well, their own counties during the summer? Well, I'll put it to this way. In Kerry, we welcomed an awful lot of people during the summer when it was okay to do so. And we didn't have an increase in, in, in figures in the pandemic. We didn't, we didn't go down, for instance, as many people, including myself, that were, were afraid of the consequences of it. But it didn't happen. And why? Because the people operating the businesses, because of the people themselves, everyone was responsible for themselves. And I've said it over and over again. The only way we're going to really work out of this is by each person being 100% responsible for themselves. Wearing these, sanitising, the simple, basic measures that we all have to take every day. But having this idea that we're going to be welcoming people from all over Europe, flying in and jetting in and having a great time. Will that happen this year? I really don't see it okay, happening. Well, I think NASA, it could be safe to happen. What for people affected by this? How much more money is the government going to actually have to spend in supporting hotels, restaurants, bars? And beyond that, also the people who are involved in the entertainment industry, people involved in musicians, gigs, all the things that aren't going to go. Is enough being done? What more needs to be done? Well, the government does have a five billion contingency fund and you heard Pascal talk about that at the beginning of the programme. I think that there was a, a feeling during the budget last year that really we didn't know what was going to happen in the next 12 months. I'm not sure anybody fully understood that there would be these kind of variants and that we would be probably in the second quarter, if not the third quarter before the, the economy really started to open back up again. And even then, we're not talking about bringing in tourists from outside the country. So I, I think there's money there. We're able to borrow. Um, I think particularly in terms of uh, the entertainment industry, um, you know, Minister Catherine Martin has been doing a huge amount of work trying to support artists. And, and I, I think they feel supported. I hope they feel supported. They are trialling things like a universal basic income um, and uh, a number of bursaries um, to various arts groups to try and support an industry that, you know, in fairness, has been very, very hard hit. So I think the, the will is there. Um, and hopefully we'll be able to, you know, get to the summer and have people move around the country. Mm. There are things that we have to start looking at, though, and I, I'm sure that I'm all the same as every other public representative and every other person who's not even in politics. The one thing that's happening now is people have to start thinking about this thing. The gearbox, the mind, the head. People are getting upset. People are uh, worried. And it's playing on people now in a way that it didn't before. And I would say one thing we have to start looking at, and as government will have to start looking at. Very, very soon, sports, 
uh, for instance, young people that uh, are involved in their local training and the, who can't meet now and train. We have to start looking at how we can get those people out into fields in a safe manner, exercising and having uh, sports games and training. It would mean so much in schools and communities and local parishes. Uh, in, 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 Are you not putting the cart before the horse there if we haven't no, even got the schools up no, yet no, no, that you're talking I, no, about no, getting out to play sports? Uh, the only reason I'm saying this too is because it is an issue. And if we'll give me that, if, if we'll give me credit for one thing, I do know what the issues are. Please, so I I wouldn't say it only that I know it's important, and I know there are parents and teachers and young people out there tonight who are saying. Oh, I don't we, disagree with you, NASA. Yeah. What can be done with it, Don? How quickly? I mean, I, I think that's a fair point, and and I think it is an issue. And any of us who have you know small children locked at home <laughs> and and not going to school know that they they need a run around, and people uh, yes. do need to get out and exercise. And and I think we are a long time into this now, and everybody's tired. So. So there are things that we can do. We might be able to do some kind of training. Um, I know in, in the last session we were able to have training without having um, sports proper. And things like park run is possible and, and all those okay. things. Okay, we'll have to leave it there. Our thanks to Michael Healy-Ray and Nasa Horrigan for joining us in studio. I'll be back on radio tomorrow afternoon and back here tomorrow night at the slightly later time of 10.15. Until then, stay home, stay safe and have a very good night. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Are you a reality TV junkie? Do you ever think, dang, I wish I had someone to talk to about all the trash TV that I watch? Well, look no further, garbage lover, because Reality Gaze is a podcast for you. Hello, I'm Maddie. And I'm Poodle, and we're the Reality Gaze. We talk about all your favorite unscripted shows like The Golden Bachelor, Love is Blind, and TLC's big, messy behemoth, 90 Day Fiance. And if you're driving to work, folding laundry, or just pretending to listen to your husband talk about sports, just put on the pod, and you've instantly got two gay besties spilling all the tea and reading these people for filth. So come at us, y'all. Find Reality Gaze wherever you listen to podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com